On September 9th, 2016, police in East Liverpool, Ohio, responded to a call. They found two citizens, James Accord and Rhonda Pasek, overdosed in the front seat of their car. In the back was a four-year-old, Rhonda's son, strapped in his car seat. Before reversing their overdose with naloxone, the police took pictures and posted them to Facebook. These pictures have become the public face of our country's overdose epidemic. On December 23, 2016, right before Christmas, a family of three was found dead in their Johnstown, Pennsylvania home, 60 miles east of Pittsburgh. The couple, Jason Chamber and Chelsea Cardero, died of a heroin overdose. Their daughter, Summer Chambers, died over the course of days from dehydration and starvation. She was five months old. Every year, over 33,000 Americans die from opioids in our country, 20,000 from prescription opioids, and almost 13,000 from heroin. For reference, that's 10 9-11s. That's more people than died in the U.S. Revolutionary War by over 8,000. From 2014 to 2015, the last years we have good data on opioid deaths, more Americans died from opioids in those two years than died during the entire Vietnam War by a few thousand. Do you want to know what's scariest? The CDC has recently come out and stated that these numbers are likely an underestimation of opioid death. What is unique about this epidemic and about the death and destruction it has brought is the central role that medicine and clinicians have played in creating it. Today on the Emergency Medical Minute, we discuss the history and roots of our opioid epidemic and introduce Colorado ASAP's 2017 Opioid Prescribing and Treatment Guidelines. Our podcasters today include myself, John Sparts, the Vice Chair of the Emergency Medical Minute, and Dr. Donald Stater, an emergency physician at Swedish Medical Center in Colorado. Dr. Stater is also the Colorado ASAP Opioid Task Force Chair, Colorado ASAP Opioid Guideline Chief Editor, and a passionate physician trying to change the course of opiate abuse in America. This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. Welcome to the Emergency and Medical Minute. I'm here with Dr. Donald Stater talking about our opioid crisis in America. Um, Don, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jack. Oh, yeah, I appreciate you here. And uh, I know you have a lot of uh, information about the opioid crisis. And first thing I kind of want to talk about or get clear for me is uh, the history of how we got here. Because I know that opioids were used initially as opium. And then after that, we had morphine. And then heroin came into the mix. And I just want to figure out at what point did we start to go wrong? Were we ever right? Yeah, uh, well, well, first of all, a long and sordid history it is indeed. And uh, what people have to know about this current epidemic and about opioids is there nothing new. We have a history with this class of drugs that is as old as medicine itself. 
And this isn't the first time we've been through an opioid epidemic and tried to come up with some solution for it. Is that right? Yeah. So let's hearken back to antiquity to start this whole shebang off, right? We have, you know, the father of, uh, of medicine, Hippocrates. And Hippocrates used opium, right? He used opium for a lot of different things. He used it to treat diarrhea. He used it to treat colic in kids, right? Opium is so entrenched in early Greek medicine that meconium, the same thing that babies poop out when they're born, actually means poppy seed, poppy juice, actually. And it was thought that opium was essential to get babies to sleep in their mothers. So ever since we've had opium and been using this plant to treat things like pain, to treat things like colic or diarrhea, we've had problems with addiction. And going from antiquity, the time of the Greeks, all the way through, you fast forward 3,000 years, we get into what to me is really some of the most fascinating, you know, history that exists, where opium is used in the early 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and really shapes world events. Uh, can you give us an example? Well, uh, let's talk about Hong Kong. Why was Hong Kong a British colony? They produced opium, I guess. No, no. It's because the Brits uh, during the, uh, you know, they were the world superpower in the 18, 1900s. And one of the biggest trade commodities that the Brits had was opium. And when the Brits actually went and had a strong foothold in Asia, particularly in China, they pushed opium that was produced in India into China. And we think of opium as a Chinese problem. And really, it was a problem that was introduced by the Brits. And the dynasty at that time, the Chinese dynasty, said, oh my gosh, this stuff is crazy. Our people are getting addicted. People are overdosing. It tried to ban opium. And that set off what was the first opium war, where the Chinese actually had something a lot like the Boston Tea Party, where they confiscated all this opium from the Brits and they just burned the crap. And then the Brits got pissed off. They went into China and they just kicked the crap out of the Chinese. And because of that, the Chinese, when they signed their treaty, signed over Hong Kong as part of, uh, as part of that treaty. And that's why it's a British colony. What also happened was the Chinese were not allowed to outlaw opium. So actually the country with the highest amount of opium or opioid addicts, that's probably in the course of history was China in the early 1900s. There was an estimated 14 million people in China that were addicted to opium. Now, the Chinese again tried to outlaw opium, and guess what happened? The British went to war with them again. They won again. And that second war, if you ask most Chinese historians, is actually what they think of as the birth of modern Chinese history. Now, that opium you know, kind of spread throughout the world. It was, it was used as a drug by modern medicines for a long time. And, you know, everyone knew it was addictive. Medicine knew it was addictive. They had books like Confession of an Opium Eater back in the late 1800s, which was a bestseller. So it was no mystery that opioids as a class had some therapeutic benefits, but that people got hooked, people overdosed, people lost their lives to this class of drug. Wow. I've actually heard that it was a common misconception about many wild Western figures that instead of going in after a, a long day's ride, going into the saloon and throwing back whiskey, they would actually go to an opium den and spend a couple days there just 
getting into that euphoric state, that sort of dreamlike state, which was commonly misrepresented in modern day America. Do you know when it came over to the United States? Oh yeah, so opium you know, came over to the United States. Uh, and for a long time, like you said, it was conflated with, uh, the Ch- with a Chinese influence. Those opium dens of the Old West in San Francisco, et cetera, were thought to be uh, you know, really brought by all these immigrants had, who had come over to work on the railroads. So again, it's just a fascinating, fascinating history. Um, opium, because it was thought to be this foreign influence, and you know, as Americans, we're pretty good at the xenophobia thing at times of our history. Opium was actually looked down upon, and people tried to pass laws, local laws, etc., to kind of try to ban opium. Although tincture of opium was used throughout early Western history, especially American history, to treat common conditions. But we knew it was addictive. People knew it was a problem drug. So we knew opium was addictive, and uh, but it, it was treating pain in modern medicine. So I'm, I think that's how morphine came about, right? Was, well, we have this very addictive substance. It works really well for pain. How do we take that pain relief quality without all of the addiction, all the bad stuff? Yeah, and you, you strike on something that's very true. When morphine was first distilled from opium, uh, morphine is the active ingredient, of course, of opium. And the thought when it was distilled was, okay, wow, we've now got the active compound. And guess what we've left behind? We've left behind all the impurities. We've left behind all the other crap that must have been making people addicted to this stuff. So morphine was viewed really as this wonder drug. And they started marketing it. You know, it was created in 1805. It started gaining wide acceptance and and was used throughout medicine. In the basically mid-1800s to early 1800s, it came over to the United States. And then, boom, the Civil War happened. And the Civil War, of course, was this traumatic event on many levels in American history. But afterwards, uh, one of the long-lasting consequences of it for the next few decades was this scourge, and it was called that. It was called a scourge of morphinism. Because we had all these soldiers who had these painful amputations who were injured in war, and they were treated with morphine. And that morphine actually, they became addicted to it, and then they brought that addiction into their homes. And we had this whole population of adults who were addicted to morphine. And that basically lasted for for decades, and thousands of Americans died from morphinism. Yeah, so we recognized at that time that morphine was an addictive substance. Maybe we got something wrong with the first one. And I think it was about 1874, an English chemist came up with a new synthetic opiate. And uh, I don't know, did we see the same sort of cycle coming off that one? (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Because heroin is the synthetic compound you're talking about. Heroin, right? And heroin was, to tell you the truth, the first pharmaceutical blockbuster drug. And heroin is our first synthetic opioid. And we said, hey, you know what? The natural stuff, the morphine, that morphine stuff is bad. Just like opium before it was bad because it was addictive. Morphine, we found out it was bad. So we made the synthetic stuff called heroin. And we said, this heroin stuff isn't addictive. And heroin was sent out to morphine addicts. It was actually mailed to them to treat their morphine addiction. But guess what? Heroin was more addictive than morphine. So it seems like we have a little bit of hindsight's 2020. We know it's addictive after the fact, and we keep coming up with new forms of the drug just perpetuating our opioid addiction throughout history. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. 
And that is definitely one of the lessons that the opioid epidemics, emphasis on the S, have really taught us in medical history. So let's, let's finish up the, uh, the heroin story. So heroin is used to treat morphinism. Thousands of Americans become addicted to heroin. And heroin was recognized as a bad player. Uh, heroin was actually outlawed. It was a drug made by a pharmaceutical company. It was actually outlawed in, I think, around 1923. It's actually called the Heroin Act. Uh, around 1906, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, kind of comes into being. And between those two things, the FDA recognizing it was bad, uh, medicine becoming more and more of a profession that looks at itself scientifically, and then the outlaw of heroin, you have this really remarkable period uh, that happens from the later uh, 1920s when also prohibition and kind of, you know, this zeal about being more clean and getting all these impurities out of American life is really part of the underlying American current. But opioids go away. Heroin goes away. Morphine isn't used as much. Um, you know, opioids are really not used from the end of the 1930s all the way to 1980s, right? for the control of anything else besides cancer pain and palliative medicine end-of-life care. So we're talking about a class of drugs that really was rarely used until the 1980s. Don, do you know what else happened in the 1980s? Jack, were you even alive when Purple Rain came out? I was actually born by the time he was a symbol. A symbol, that's yeah. right. <laughs> I remember the, the symbol known as Prince. <laughs> yeah, and what a tragic story, right? Prince is, uh, I think, the most famous modern victim of our current opioid epidemic. And ironically, the year that Purple Rain came out, uh, which I think was 1983 or 1984, that was the same time as uh, we started with the American Academy of Algalogy. And the American Academy of Algalogy is, of course, the study of pain. And it launched this new specialty of pain medicine. Now, they changed their name from Algalogy because it also means the study of algae. So they, they eventually became, the very next year, the American Academy of Pain Medicine, which exists today. So, Don, you go through these five pillars that are uh, charged with being sort of the cause of this current opioid epidemic. And what, what's pillar one? Well, um, the reason why I mentioned the uh, American Academy of Pain Medicine is because they're pillar one. The pillar that this new opioid epidemic started with was a new specialty, bad science, and bad medicine. Um, and what happened was this American pain specialist, which were created in the 1980s, really looked at it and philosophically differed with how medicine was treating pain. They thought we were under-treating it. Uh, they had a very compelling story that physicians and medicine were allowing patients to suffer because we were afraid of opioids. And they coined new terms, terms like opiophobia, terms like illegal analgesia. They medicalized, in a lot of ways, um, their belief that opioids were a fear drug and they didn't need to be so. So here we see history repeat itself. 
they forgot the lessons of the several opioid epidemics, emphasis on the S, and started a new one. Yep, yep. And, you know, they started it not because they're villains, not because they're bad people. I mean, pain's part of the human condition. And the reason why medicine has made the same mistake over and over again is because ultimately we want to help people. And part of helping people means helping them be in less pain. Uh, but you're right. They had a philosophical um, difference with medicine and how it was practiced. And they tried to push that on medicine. And where this kind of bled into bad science is, you know, they'd written papers about oligoanalgesia and opiophobia. And then they came out with a study. And this study, very famous study, was called Chronic Uses of Opioid Analgesia in Non-Malignant Pain report of 38 cases. And it was written by a, a doctor called Robert Portnoy. And this study by Robert Portnoy is really the first study that says, hey, look, we treated all these chronic pain patients with opioids, and only two out of 38 became addicted, and one of them already had a problem with addiction before. So from that study, they extrapolated that if a doctor, if somehow magically a doctor was treating pain, that it wasn't addictive, that a doctor could give opioids to patients and they wouldn't get hooked on it. And it came out of this with 1%, the number that they took and that was pushed to the whole house of medicine was that only 1% of chronic opioid users became addicted and misused their opioids. So Dr. Portnoy came out a few years ago and I think he recanted a lot of his findings from the initial study, is that right? Yeah, he actually came out, he's apologized for that original study. He's called his own study bad science. Well, actually, Don, from the horse's mouth, we have the audio of that interview. I gave so many lectures to primary care audiences in which the Porter and Chick article was just one piece of data that I would then cite, and I would cite six, seven, maybe ten different avenues of thought or avenues of evidence, none of which represented real evidence. And yet what I was trying to do was to, to create a narrative so that the primary care audience would look at this information in toto and feel more comfortable about opioids in a way they hadn't before. In essence, this was education to destigmatize. And because the primary goal was to destigmatize, we often left evidence behind. Clearly, if I had an inkling of what I know now then, I wouldn't have spoken in the way that I spoke. Um, it was clearly the wrong thing to do. And, um, and to the extent that some of the adverse outcomes now are, are as bad as they have become in terms of endemic occurrences of addiction and um, unintentional overdose deaths, uh, it's, it's quite scary to think about how the, the growth in that prescribing driven by people like me um, led in part to that occurring. Wow, uh, I've not heard that audio actually directly before, so thanks for, uh, thanks for finding that, Jack, and bringing it to our listeners. Um, and pain medicine definitely has a big contribution to our early move back toward opioids. Um, I also want to soften it a little bit and say, you know, pain medicine doctors are still trying to do the right thing for their patients. Chronic pain, especially pain treated with opioids, should be under a specialist who is going to look over that and make sure that patients aren't having bad side effects, who are titrating opioids up and down, 
um, appropriately. But I think you can't talk about this opioid epidemic without pointing back to the early mistakes of that specialty and how that perversely affected the rest of medicine. So with each opioid epidemic that we've talked about today, there's been a new magic cure-all, and there's been someone behind that cure-all pushing it out, marketing it to the populace. Did that happen with this epidemic? Oh yeah, you're, you're hitting on pillar two. Pillar two is, to me, the true villains of this epidemic, and that is the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry um, looked at some of this early data and it kind of dovetailed nice with what they were doing was they were actually making new opioids. And uh, the blockbuster opioid that they come out with early in the 1980s was a medicine called Oxycontin. We've heard a lot about Oxycontin. Yep, Oxycontin is one of the most famous early examples of the amazing effect that pharmaceutical marketing can have not only on physician prescribing, but on the American populace. Uh, where just like heroin, this was the wonder drug of the early 1980s and 1990s. It was supposed to be long-acting, lower risk of addiction. It was supposed to be the answer. Better tasting, less filling, exactly. Um, and it's actually worth investigating Oxycontin. And there's a very famous uh, video that they actually made. It's called, I Got My Life Back. And I, I would like to actually go through what was said in this video and then what happened to the people in it. Yeah. So let's play some audio from, uh, from the video where Alan Spanos, this uh, pain physician in North Carolina, talks about opioids and talks about Oxycontin. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids. But these are the same drugs that have a reputation for causing addiction and other terrible things. Now, in fact, the rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. So that was the doctor, and they actually profiled six other patients. And here's the soundbite from Johnny. And Johnny was the reason this was called I Got My Life Back. I got my life back. Now, now I can enjoy every day that I live. I can really enjoy myself. And before, even a good day was hell. I mean, I couldn't enjoy nothing. But now I can enjoy myself. That's when I said wonderful. I look at the future the same way uh, uh, um, a young guy, 25, 30-year-old would. Oh, yeah. that um, the Johnny, that was from a news story um, talking about yeah, this Oxycodone. is. Yep, this, this, there's actually been a doc, small documentary and a few news stories about what happened to these six patients that this uh, pain doctor treated with Oxycontin. And let's just run through those because I think they're illustrative. Johnny died because he overdosed on his Oxycontin and got in a wreck. And his wife blames Oxycontin for killing him. Another guy called Ira had fibromyalgia and was given Oxycontin for fibromyalgia, which he would have never done before. Guess what? He started abusing the Oxycontin. He started doctor shopping. And he also died of an overdose in his house. Another lady, a sweet African-American lady called Deborah, Oxycontin ruined her life. Uh, she became so addicted to them and the dose kept on going up that she had trouble affording them. She lost her job. And then instead of paying for her mortgage, she paid for Oxycontin. 
And eventually she lost absolutely everything. And she got herself clean. She weaned herself off. She got clean off Oxycontin, went through terrible withdrawals. And she says to this day, you could not pay me enough money to go back on even one Oxycontin pill. Now, from this, it's not all bad because there's actually two patients um, who are still on Oxycontin to this day and taking it for chronic pain and still working. And those patients have also been kind of profiled. And there's one patient who's just lost a follow-up. So when you look at that and you say, okay, well, 1% is, you know, only 1% has bad side effects. You look at those six people, three people had their lives ruined by Oxycontin. Two people died. One person lost everything. That's 50%. That's, that sure as heck isn't one out of every hundred. And it just goes to show you how terrible these drugs are. Now, a lot of people know, too, that Purdue Pharma, which is the one who pushed out Oxycontin, uh, was found crim criminally negligent, and uh, they actually had to pay $600 million for misleading advertising and for misleading on the safety of Oxycontin. So we did have some negative repercussions yeah. for pushing this drug, you know, misleading the public. It's a farce, Jack. It's an absolute farce. You know, oh, people are going to look at that number and say, oh, 600 million. That's huge. You know how much they made a year off of Oxycontin? One billion. It's not even a year's, year's profit from their, their sales. You know how much they made in the 10, 10 years of selling Oxycontin? Two, two, sorry, $22 billion. That's not even a slap on the wrist. That's laughable. So... Purdue, you're making them out to be this bad guy. Are they the only one? <laughs> I wish. I wish there was only one evil pharmaceutical company. Uh, you know, fentanyl is the most recent example of a pharmaceutical uh, drug that has been missold and misrepresented. And fentanyl, the owner and a lot of his executives, I think one of them was actually just arrested because what they encouraged their pharmaceutical reps to do was actually to instruct doctors to use this off usage, and especially the sublingual fentanyl. They told doctors, you know, one, that they should start using this drug. They gave doctors who used more of it uh, lavish trips. Uh, they incentivized doctors to use, use the drug. So it just shows that these, these pharmaceutical agencies try to mislead doctors into using their drugs. And then they turn around and they bill Medicare, Medicaid, and basically make off like bandits. They make bank off of this stuff. Do you know the numbers of how much they've invested into that, that scheme? <laughs> uh, into the scheme of buying doctors, they've invested a heck of a lot. And there's one actually example that I want to give, which is ironic. Even supposedly good guys, the guys who make a naloxone or this company called Calio that makes a naloxone auto injector called Evzio have inflated their price from 690 bucks to now over $4,000 in the last year, year and a half. And that's for one injector? That's for, yeah, an injector double pack. Oh. So even the guys who are supposed to be rescuing people from overdose, even those pharmaceutical agencies, they've basically taken to nothing but pure profiteering off of this opioid epidemic. So they've spent a ton of money sort of pushing physicians to start prescribing, you know, naloxone injectors and opiate medications, but where else have they been focusing? Because I'm sure there's a lobby, right? 
-hmm. Yeah, and you know, of all the lobbies in Washington, D.C., I think you can make the argument that the pharmaceutical lobby is the most powerful. Uh, some people would say, oh, it's the gun lobby. The gun lobby gets a lot of press because guns are controversial. Uh, drugs, less so. Did you know that the pharmaceutical industry has outspent the gun lobby by eight times? Between 2006 and 2015, Big Pharma spent $880 billion on lobbying and campaign contribution. They've bought Washington. A lot of the reason why you can't touch them, why Medicaid and Medicare can't negotiate drug prices is because pharmaceutical agencies give way too much to congressmen, presidents, senators. It's a really perverse system. So the pharmaceutical industry, I mean, they're driving forces in this epidemic, but the government then can't be held, you know, they have to be held culpable to some extent. Yeah, the government's been a, a major pusher of this epidemic as well, mostly because a lot of the regulation that they've pushed has been informed by the pharmaceutical industry. So that's pillar number three, government regulation and the effect that government regulation has had on really instilling uh, opioids into medicine. So, I mean, how has the government sort of regulated this, this incorporation of opioids into pain management? Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a variety of ways. And I'm, I'm going to use two to kind of illustrate this. Uh, first, I think all of us in medicine have dealt with this big transition from a seemingly easy paper charting to electronic medical records. And one of the things that we did when we went into electronic medical records is that every electronic medical record has to have a pain scale and every pain scale has to be completed for every patient. And that's, you know, something that now is considered just a part of your care in the emergency department. Your nurse asks, what's your pain? One to 10. Us as doctors go in and ask, what's your pain? One to 10. As if there was ever a one to 10 score for someone's actual pain. And then we've kind of gone and said, oh, well, pain is totally subjective. A person who's sitting there chewing, chewing bubble gum and playing on their cell phone can say their pain score is a 10, and we have to document that. And now if they leave and their pain score while chewing bubble gum is still a 10, then Joint Commission comes and they say, oh, well, you have not controlled pain. You obviously didn't care about this patient. Um, so it sets up this really weird system where it's a patient's you call it. Uh, in terms of pain, which in some ways is right, but in other ways it perverses the system. It takes away the doctors, the nurses, the physician's assistant, the nurse practitioner's way to objectively look at someone and say whether they're in pain or not. So, is, I mean, is there a silver lining there? You know, is our treatment of, or is our identification of pain and our treatment of it, is it better for patient satisfaction? Is it helping that sort of metric? Oh, patient satisfaction. <laughs> so you touch on something else that uh, I'm actually going to chat about, especially in terms of government regulation. Um, government comes out with these, you know, patient satisfaction scores. HCAPS is, is how it's really been adopted into medicine by CMS. And in HCAPS, uh, there's a big thing about pain control. And, uh, and the question actually as worded says, during this hospital stay, how often did the hospital staff do everything they could to help you with your pain? And that's considered quality. Um, hospital staff's doing everything that they could to help you with your pain. 
I mean, it's no wonder why doctors and nurses feel almost pushed into prescribing opioids uh, and prescribing them liberally. So now that we're measuring it, I mean, patient satisfaction scores are a good thing then. You know, no. we're getting well, patients happier. Well, so patient satisfaction scores, you know, there's an argument to say that they're not a good thing. Um, definitely, I think that medicine can be accused in the past of being cruel and maybe of being cold. So I definitely agree. We have to bring humanism back to the bedside. We have to care about our patients. That has to be the center of what we do. But having them satisfied is a really poor metric of that. And there's several studies that say, hey, when you have higher patient satisfaction scores, your score is more expensive. There's some studies that say you actually increase mortality by patient satisfaction because you do all this additional crap that's really not medically warranted just to satisfy the patient. Um, so I think a lot of people would look at it, and a lot of physicians, ED docs, would point to patient satisfaction and say, this is why I feel obligated to write for prescriptions of Percocet, because I don't want a bad patient satisfaction score, because I don't want to be dinged uh, by someone going and writing a review on Google or on Yelp or one of these other physician ranking services that's out there nowadays. But I have heard that CMS now is thinking about removing pain scores. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. And uh, I think for a lot of us who think about this epidemic and who are obsessed with reducing opioids, that's going to be a great move if they actually do so. So, Don, uh, one of the things I ran into in the first two months working in the ER was that pain is the fifth vital sign. I heard that saying. It's, you know, right up there with blood pressure. <laughs> Yes, yes. Pain is a vital sign. That was a wonderful marketing ploy uh, by the uh, American Pain Society uh, in 1996. They called pain is a vital sign. And, uh, and that really brings us to pillar number four, which is the role that organized medicine, corporate medicine, and guidelines have had in pushing this epidemic upon the populace. Um, the American Pain Society came out with those that pain is a vital sign uh, in 1996. The next year, that was actually picked up by the Veterans Association, uh, the, by the VA, and they actually put that into all their, uh, all their triage things. Is What's your pain? 1 to 10. And really that, 1997 is when pain became uh, almost mandated because the VA picked it up, because Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, picked it up. That pain made its way into being one of the questions that we ask, uh, along with, you know, what the heart rate is, what the blood pressure is, what, what the temperature is, and then pain. Here's the difference. No one's ever died from a pain scale of 10. People sure as heck have died from a blood pressure that's in the 50s. So pain is not a vital sign, but it sure as heck is a great marketing ploy. So, Don, give me another example of a guideline or a misstep in how we uh, utilize opiates in medicine. One that really illustrates um, a few things, including the perverse way that pharmaceuticals have, have uh, affected medical guidelines, is the 2009 uh, American Geriatric Society guidelines. And these guidelines were actually somewhat controversial uh, because they recommended opioids over NSAIDs for chronic pain. Now, granted, NSAIDs are not a perfect drug for the elderly. Um, I think you can point to it and say, hey, they have increased rates of MI, they have increased rates of bleeding, uh, increased rates of kidney failure. So these are not benign drugs in some, in some cases. 
But you can't turn around and say that opioids are benign drugs in elderly people either. You want to talk about increased rates of falls. You want to talk about accidental overdose. You want to talk about immunosuppression and increased rates of pneumonia. So them putting opioids before NSAIDs, I think, was uh, was a questionable call at best. At least the science doesn't back it up. And where's the motive for that? Well, if you actually look at the panel, there's a panel of 10 different geriatricians that came out, and five of them were actually paid speakers for the pharmaceutical industry, especially on opioids. Here's the irony. So you say, oh, five of 10, it's a 50-50 shot. Guess who became a paid speaker for opioids right after those guidelines were published? Who else? The chair? The chair. Exactly. So I don't know. Maybe it's just that the optics look bad. But I'd say that for us to say that those physicians who made those guidelines can say that they were without bias is a little tenuous at best. Now, another another example uh, is this 2011 report the Institute of Medicine published, which is called Relieving Pain in America. Right? So there's this tremendous epidemic of pain in America, apparently. And it talks about how it's a moral imperative. And of course, it's, it's pretty heavy on pushing aggressive pain control with, guess what, opioids. You know how many times that around 150-page document mentions addiction? Four. And all in passing. It, does, it, it blips right by it. So we have all these different, you know, in the late 1990s, early 2000, we have all these different groups in medicines kind of jumping in and saying, pain control, we do it like crap. We have to give more opioids. We have to give it more aggressively. But guess what? From 1999, right, to 2000, to our current day, we've increased our opioid prescriptions and giving opioids four times. Guess what it's done to pain? Nothing. Americans rank their pain the same, even when we give opioids out like they're Tic Tacs. That brings us out of the macro perspective into the physician-patient sort of relationship. What is it about that controlling pain that drives physicians to prescribe opiates with patients? Well, I think that's where this has been such a um, really malignant epidemic, um, just like a cancer. You just don't know it's there until people are dying in front of you and overdosing in front of you. And that's definitely been the experience, I think, of this most recent epidemic, is doctors didn't know that we were the problem, that we didn't know that our prescribing practices and how liberally we were prescribing these drugs drove this epidemic. And that's one of the big reasons why we have to investigate our practices, you know, because opioids cannot be part of our modus operandi. They can't be part of the DNA of medicine. They're an important tool in medicine, but to think that they're the way that we control pain is wrong-minded, and we've got cemeteries full of people to show it is. So, Don, we've heard four pillars. I really want to hear number five. Yeah, number five for me is, is by far one of the most philosophical ones not just as it relates to um, this opioid epidemic, but how it relates to medicine as a whole. And that's the movement that we have of regarding medicine as a business instead of a calling and regarding patients as consumers. And that patients as consumers piece is really, I think, an undercurrent that's led to a lot of dissatisfaction among providers 
and also I think has led to worsening health for our population, especially when you look at opioids. So tell me a little bit about the role of the hospital or the patient or the doctor kind of in that new cultural uh, dynamic you're talking about. Yeah, so it's something that puts business first rather than health first. Um, and in it, just like the pain score you know, is totally subjective, it, it puts the patient uh, more in the driver's seat as the consumer, right? Because, hey, if you don't give them opioids, they're going to choose a different health system. They're going to choose a different doctor. They're going to they're gonna get their opioids somewhere. So why don't you just give it to them? Um, and, uh, you know, patients aren't consumers. They're not just looking for marketable goods. And we as doctors need to put that patient's health first, you know, and we need to inform them of the things they can do to preserve their health, even when it might be contradictory to what they want to hear. So for example, Jack, if you came in and you were 250 pounds, I would probably talk to you about the fact that you need to eat less cheeseburgers. You might love cheeseburgers. Talking to people about their weight is, of course, an extremely sensitive thing, right? But it's the right thing to do as a doc. It's the right thing to say, hey, this is going to cause a lot of problems for you back down the line. If you don't cut the weight, if you don't change how you're eating, if you don't exercise, your health is going to be negatively impacted and you're going to die a younger man. Right? That's a hard conversation. If someone's drinking too much, I should talk to them about drinking. If someone's smoking and I tell them that you shouldn't, right? these aren't things that are going to please someone. They're not going to be happy that I told them about it, but it's the right thing for them. See, Don, I, I can see that because I see patients coming in demanding opioids all the time. Yeah, and that's the consumer mentality that we've kind of bred is um, patients do come in demanding, demanding opioids. And uh, that's something that has been created in part by this, the patient is not a patient, it's a consumer. You know, one of the things I really geek out about and love is uh, etymology, right? Which is the, the root of words and what those words mean. And I think that it's just illustrative to run through what some of the very common words in medicine and what they actually mean. Because I think it returns us to the state where medicine should be, to our practice, to our core. Uh, so hospital, what does hospital mean? So it comes from the same root as hospitality, right? And uh, what hospital means is shelter for the needy. It doesn't mean corporation that makes lots of money. It doesn't mean uh, healthcare warehouse, you know? We're, we're, not, we're not a you call it place. We're a shelter for the needy. We're a place that prides itself on caring for the sick. What does doctor mean? Most people know what doctor means. Teacher, I think. Yeah, teacher, right? It doesn't mean curer. It doesn't mean healer. It means teacher. And one of the most important things we do is teach people about their health and how to care for it. Uh, and especially when it comes to opioids, we, we need to educate our patients that sometimes pain from an ankle sprain does not warrant a Percocet. We need to teach them that they can, you know, persevere through their pain. We need to teach them that some of these drugs, which are easy fixes initially, will turn into long-term problems later. So doctor means teacher. What does patient mean? Couldn't tell you. <laughs> patient, pati. It comes from the root word of sufferer, right? Patient means to suffer. Uh, and of course, we don't want our patients to suffer. Uh, but it, it also feeds into uh, one of the other things, which is a hallmark of medicine, which is compassion, right? What does compassion mean? Compassion means to suffer with someone, right? And that's what we do, what we used to do as physicians is we'd talk to people about their suffering. We'd let them know that they don't suffer alone. We'd tell them how we can maybe do things and intervene to relieve some of their suffering as best we can. But medicine, the first rule is do no harm. 
And I think that when we started trying to please people by just pushing opiates on them, we started doing harm to our entire population. So, Don, you talk about the etymology of all of these words related to medicine. What does consumer mean? This is my favorite one, Jack. Consumer. Uh, consumer uh, has become, uh, you know, a word to talk about people who buy goods. But the actual original root word to consumer is one who squanders or wastes. And you actually had consumer used in medicine for the first time in consumption. And what did, what was consumption? Do you tuberculosis. Remember? Yeah. Tuberculosis, yeah. right? Where people would waste away because of this tremendous disease, consumption. But somehow now we like to talk about our patients as consumers instead of patients. And uh, if you go back to the root, to, uh, to what these words actually mean, I think that one especially is illustrative. So we have these physicians uh, that are supposed to be teachers, that are supposed to be advocating for the health of their patients. And yet with this sort of consumer mentality, you have the sufferer coming into a, a shelter for shelter for the needy. And they're, they're sitting in the driving seat. They're saying, telling you what they want. They're telling you what they need. Mm-hmm. And at, you know, at this point with this sort of culture, the physicians are doing a little bit less teaching and a little bit more, you know, more pleasing, pleasing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And, and something that kind of going through these words and reminding myself of them is that to me, it really reinstills the heart of medicine is we want to do what's best for our patients. Uh, we want to care for them, right? Um, that doesn't mean just giving out these drugs like they're willy-nilly, like uh, giving these opioids because we know they do harm. Uh, we have to be teachers, and we're going to have to teach our patients that opioids are not right for them again. Uh, we're going to have to take it upon ourselves to reinvent uh, medicine and reinvent pain control. And we're going to have to do it or thousands of people are going to continue to die. So this entire discussion has left me a little bit sad, Don. A little bit like, how do we break the cycle? You know, we've seen these epidemics all through history. We're currently in one. We can see sort of from our vantage point what's going wrong and what's going right. How do you see us getting out of it? Well, uh, you know, this whole talk was to introduce this epidemic to our listeners, to have them look at it with a different pair of eyes and to have them understand its roots. But to just point at a problem and say there's a problem really is uh, abdicating your responsibility. And in medicine, we have a responsibility, now that we know this is a problem, to act on it and to reverse this epidemic. Um, So this brings me to something that I'm tremendously excited about, which is the uh, Colorado ASEP opioid guidelines. Uh, So let's talk about Colorado ASEP. Colorado ASEP is is ASEP, the American College of Emergency Physicians. We're the group that represents emergency doctors throughout the state, and our big ASEP represents emergency doctors throughout the country. And Colorado ASAP for the past year has been working on creating the most forward-thinking, comprehensive guidelines as related to this opioid epidemic in the nation. And these guidelines have really four pillars to them, whereas most guidelines just say, hey, don't prescribe opioids. You know, you look at the CDC guidelines for chronic pain, it says, hey, try not to prescribe opioids. We know that no, saying no to opioids is an important thing. But there's a heck of a lot more we need to say than no. We need to limit the amount of opioids we're prescribing. Then we also need to revolutionize how we control pain. 
And there's this new alto approach to pain, alternatives to opioids, where we can actually bring those to the bedside. We can control pain, but we don't have to expose patients to all the risk that we were in the past few decades. Then there's harm reduction, right? Because in America right now, we have millions of people who are addicted to drugs thanks to their physicians. What are we gonna do to keep those patients safe, especially our patients who have turned to the streets and who are using heroin? We need to take better care of them. And then finally, we need to get people into recovery. We in medicine need to take responsibility for the patients that we've created that are now addicted to these opioids and possibly abusing them. And we need to be a big part in helping them get help and helping them get into a state of recovery. And our guidelines kind of look at all of that. We put it all together and we tell people how we can do all these things and do them well from the emergency department. Well, Don, I'm really excited. When do they come out? <laughs> the, the guidelines themselves uh, have been published and, uh, and they're pretty easily available uh, from Colorado ASAP. Uh, they're also being rolled out in a pretty groundbreaking study that's gonna look at what happens when we implement these guidelines across eight different emergency departments in Colorado. And Colorado ASAP is tremendously um, proud to be working with our hospital partner, the Colorado Hospital Association, uh, who's stepped up to the plate, recognized that this is a tremendous epidemic here in Colorado, and is really being proactive about partnering with us to address it from the emergency department. And all these podcasts, this podcast, and the podcast that you're gonna be listening to next, part of our series on these Colorado ASAP guidelines are all funded by the Colorado Hospital Association. Well, Don, I wanna thank you for coming in and talking to us a little bit about this huge epidemic we're facing in America. Thank you, Jack, for having me. <laughs>